Welcome to episode 39 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, we speak to retired agent Stan Reagan. Stan served in the FBI for 29 years. During his career, he was a member of SWAT, the coordinator of the Evidence Response Team, ERT, and worked Crisis Management Matters, both as an agent and a squad supervisor. Due to his involvement in these programs, Stan participated in some degree in many of the major investigations handled by the New York office. In particular, he played an important role in coordinating the office's extraterritorial response to crisis events around the world. Some notable examples are the Kobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia, TWA Flight 800, Egypt Air Flight 990, the bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen, the bombing of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, and, of course, the 9-11 attacks. Stan also assisted in the New York FBI's response to Hurricane Marilyn in the U.S. Virgin Islands, U.S. Air Flight 1549, and Hurricane Sandy. In this episode, Stan is interviewed about developing and managing the FBI New York's evidence response team and continuity of operations procedures. He talks about a particular case in which he and members of the ERT found human remains in a collapsed building in Harlem while assisting one of the New York Division squads on a drug case. According to Stan, the success of ERT in this matter demonstrated what the team could do and is an example of cooperation and collaboration with the FBI and New York City agencies. Prior to retiring, Stan served as a senior advisor to New York field office executives, developing continuity of operations, plans, and procedures. Before we get to that interview, uh, I do want to let everyone know who's been asking, especially Sean, who asked for his daughter. Uh, I do have an episode coming up at the end of the month about the FBI hiring program, what the qualifications are, and we'll also uh, talk about the FBI Academy, you know, what it's like to go through the Academy now. It's been a long time since I was there, so I'm sure they've changed a lot of things. So I'm looking forward to that, too. I probably will record that interview uh, next week. If you have any specific questions that you want to ask, make sure you email me those or tweet them to me as soon as you can. And uh, when I conduct that interview, probably next Thursday, October the 20th, I will try to include your questions and get those answers for you. I do want to bring you up to date on Pay to Play, my novel about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. It's still doing well. Thank you for reading and reviewing it. Thank you so much for your support. Now here's the show. Hi, everyone. I want to introduce my guest for today, Stan Reagan. Hi, Stan. Hello. How are you? I am doing great. Now, this is going to be a different type of interview. 
Normally, we just concentrate on a case, but for you, you have been integral in many of the programs that have been established in the New York office and in the Bureau. Uh, We're talking about evidence response team. We're talking about crisis management. So we're going to be talking a lot about those programs, how they were built up and why they were built up, and then talk about some cases that related to your uh, participation in those programs. But before we get to that, I want to talk about you. I want to learn a little bit about when you joined the FBI and why you wanted to be a special agent. Well, thank you. Uh, I joined the FBI in June 1987. Uh, Before that, I was a local cop for five years. And uh, ever since I was of high school age, I I wanted to join the FBI. I mean, the brand was very well known. My grandfather dated somebody whose son was an agent, and it was somewhat mysterious. Uh, and, and for me, it was actually a, a weird way because it came about by accident. And what I mean was, I, I wrote to the FBI back when I was in high school, and they came back, and you know the requirements were, you know, yeah, your vision had to be no worse than 2040. So that knocked me out of the box. So I kind of forgot about that for a while. And when I was on the police department, uh, one of the other officers was applying for the FBI, and. Uh, he showed me what the requirements were. So the revision requirements loosened up a little bit, and it's sort of like, well, gee, now I, you know, I can, I can apply. You know, I had just gotten my degree. I went to night school, so I was a little bit late on that. It took three and a half years, but I, but I actually got my commission, and I was very happy to see that. So how old were you when you joined? I was uh, 29, just under 30. <laughs> Yeah, that's the average, I understand. That's the average, too, which I was actually surprised about. I I just would never have thought that I'd have a dream like that to uh, be at what is the premier law enforcement agency out there and to learn what they have to offer and just do the things they do. And, you know, I would say to people that I, I would never have met the people, gone places, participated in things in my life if it wasn't for the FBI, and now that I'm retired, actually, uh, I actually miss a lot of the people that I work with. Were you always in the New York office? I, when I went through in 1987, it says if you wanted to go back to New York, more than likely you would. Uh, I, I was from the area. I had actually recently got married, so I thought that at least initially, I'm familiar with New York and comfortable with it. Let me try that office. I put in, I got it, and time just flew by so fast for me that before you know it, that's basically where I stayed. And so before you began running some of these programs, uh, what kind of uh, assignments did you have? I was working uh, terrorism, basically, and then I was a technically trained agent for for a while as well. At what point did you start uh, working with ERT? And I think you're going to tell us about one of the cases that you believe really gave a boost to the program in New York. I uh, became coordinator of the evidence response team in 1996. And the case I would like to share with you is a case where a joint task force of FBI and New York Police Department detectives, they called it Operation Doomsday, but it was uh, after a specific, very violent drug gang that operated at the Bronx in Harlem. 
And what makes this case very unique and put the evidence response team in New York on the map was that I was able to collaborate and coordinate with a host of city agencies, namely the New York Police Department, Sanitation Department, and Housing and Preservation Department, to conduct uh, a search operation that lasted a week, which was very successful. And the fact that the human remains were in a collapsed building added additional concerns, certainly of safety, for those that were conducting the search. What I found out was that the agents and professional support that were on this team were basically looked at as a search team, just a surge of people to go out and do different things. I didn't believe that the agent population understood what our technical capabilities were. But more importantly, one of the bigger challenges in New York was to develop that collaboration and cooperation among other agencies. Dealing with the New York City Police Department, who has resources that are almost unbelievable. When I was in the SWAT program, I prided myself in meeting people that were basically within our area that we were looking into. I mean, I got developed a very good relationship with the emergency services unit, so much so that I was over there all the time. I would ride with them like on a midnight shift, do a lot of the management on a first-name basis. And I carried that over with this particular case. And what happened was the case agents on this particular matter, they developed information of human remains in this partially collapsed building. And it was uh, Bradhurst Avenue, and I want to say it was West 147th Street. So why did the building collapse? Was it because it was old? It, or it was had- just an old, run-down building that uh, housing and preservation took over years before, and it was unoccupied, and it just was just rotting away. And I got a couple of photos. I had yet to find the video that I took, which would kind of give you a good flavor, but I did find some of the original crime scene photos that would show you what the kind of like the conditions we were looking at. And the case agent said, hey, we're looking to got reports of human remains in this building. You know, can you help us? All right. So why is it? Why is the FBI involved in a case where there's human remains in a collapsed building? What's, uh, what's the jurisdiction? This was uh, a notorious crew at the time called the Preacher Crew, which there was uh, the leader was a guy, the Preacher, they called him, or the Black Hand of Death was a guy named Heatley, Clarence Heatley. And then his top lieutenant was a guy named Cuff, which is a former lieutenant on the housing police department. And they were running rampant in the drug trade from the Bronx and Harlem. And the FBI had a task force, a drug task force at that time. And it was Operation Doomsday. So the Bureau was running it from federal jurisdiction with the narcotics. And the PD was running it from their end to try to find human remains. Now, you're true, they were trying to link the crime to this guy. It wasn't necessarily we would process the human remains. And that's where the collaboration really came in well for us, because ahead of time, I met with my friend in the emergency services unit, and I also met with the uh, commanding officer of the crime scene unit to basically lay some groundwork on, you know, this is what we're going to do. How do we, A, make it safe? How do we approach this? How do we gather the resources? And when we find remains, 
you know, how, how are we going to process this correctly so we make sure that there's no inadvertent mistakes being done? And all this done was ahead of time. And uh, the hard part was basically gathering the resources to search this building. So uh, we actually did a survey of this building, and the building started to what they call a pancake collapse, which meant the roof caved in to the next floor, and then the next floor would collapse down further. It was a very unsafe structure. We were actually in January, so rain and snow was going to complicate the matter. Through basically, you know, lieutenant on the police department and me, I mean, we really weren't high-ranking people, but we were able to gather enough resources and cooperation of other city agencies to develop a plan that we're going to find human remains in this thing, but it's something that's probably going to like, take us a number of days. It's nothing that we can kind of do on a, a one ship, come back, one ship, come back. So we did everything from have you know, porta potties there. We had Department of Sanitation come in every day to clean out the dumpsters from the debris that's being removed. And probably the biggest coup that we got was housing and preservation paid to have this absolutely immense crane come in so that we could actually remove the heavy materials. Did you know there were human remains no. or you had gotten confidential information saying that there were human remains in this building? That, that was actually it. It was they developed source information that were, there were two sets of human remains. Okay. And what this uh, creature crew used to do was they used this building to dump their bodies, allegedly. Okay. One thing after, you know, doing evidence in the New York field office, for some reason, Finding human remains was very, very tough for us because it was always based upon source information and whether the remains were even there in the first place was was suspect. But what made this particular one challenging is that if you think about it, what better place than to throw human remains than in the building that's collapsing? Because the collapsing of the building itself is going to hamper or destroy a lot of your evidence. And secondly, who in their right mind is going to go in there and look for it? Right. Collapse on. So some of the interesting things that we did was that the police department actually built a hatch for the roof, which we called the dance floor. And every night, this crane would basically patch the roof to make sure that, uh, you know, rain or snow or just the weather itself didn't go inside the building. So we we basically did this the hard way. We went from the top to the beginning. We were moving debris. Everything was working well. And then halfway through the week, which was like Wednesday night, believe it or not, we actually found the remains of a female that was actually shot in the head. So there's no doubt that it wasn't just an accidental person who went in there and absolutely no died of an overdose. Right. Right. No. And and. Our plan worked perfectly. I called my uh, contact in the crime scene unit. They were aware. They came by, and we assisted them into bringing the body to the medical examiner's office. And from what we were told is, you know, finding those remains were integral for it, it got removed the federal juris- jurisdiction. And uh, these two main people basically plea bargained the death penalty to life imprisonment where they are now. So the two pe- the, the people, this one female that you found, was it uh, like a, a witness intimidation thing? Uh, it, 
I mean, why why was she shot in the head? It, it was. I never got the true answer to that was, but there was some reason why they wanted to get rid of her. I just think that she knew what was going on with with the gang, and they would just dump their 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 uh, their victims in this building. Now we never did locate the other alleged victim that was in the building. I mean, we by Friday, which was the fifth day, we basically emptied out to the first floor of the building. We, we couldn't get to the basement. So is it possible there was something else in there? I, I guess there was. You know, I, We don't know. And, and, and the thing of it was is when housing and preservation came back when we were getting near the end, I, I asked them, well, what are you going to do with this building now that we cleaned it out? And they said, well, we're going to blow it up. So that's exactly what they wanted to do, and, that, and that's exactly what they did. So... Whether that source information for the other body was true or not, it, we'll never know. You know, but we did find that one remains, which uh, I think made their case, and that is what basically made the evidence response team program in New York, because the case agents couldn't believe that on a handshake that we were able to muster basically a small army that went around the clock for. Uh, a whole week. Was there training at that point in time? Were the agents and and this was agents and support people and and on the uh, evidence response team? Yes. Yes. No? At that time, we were basically funded for twenty four people, and that funding meant that we got an allocation of a few hundred dollars to buy safety gear and any other equipment that we needed. And you know, this was at a time when the program in New York was at its infancy. So we really didn't have a whole heck of a lot. I mean, we had a hand-me-down truck from the SWAT program that held whatever gear we had, and and that was it. But this thing, when we did it, in in addition to handling some other big cases like PWA 800 and some of the extraterritorial thing, was the jettison of building this program to where we got new vehicles, some additional supplies, and uh, support from the office to go out and do this. And I really made an effort to to be a cheerleader for this program, to say, hey, this is what we found, and this is how we did it, and this is the techniques that we can bring, because the general agent population didn't have access to, you know, alternate light sources and chemicals to find blood. But I think our biggest strength was that we had a relationship with the you know, law enforcement community and city agencies that, you know, we could bring a lot of resources together. And I did that many, many times over the course of my stewardship of the program. In fact, there was one time in Brooklyn, they wanted us to find human remains in this vacant lot. And this was one of the few times that it was classic. I mean, I walked into this lot, I could see the depression, the ground was different. I says, there's definitely something buried here. But the challenge we faced was we were, again, in the middle of winter. So if you took a pickaxe and you hit the ground, you might as well have been hitting concrete. It just moved. But because I had the relationship with the police department, they came by with this pneumatic jack that cut through that ground like a hot knife through butter, and we found human remains. So it, it was more about... Equipment and techniques. It was and partnerships. It sounds like partnership that you know. All right. So what 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 was happening before this program? 
before ERT began in its infancy, if you had information about human remains, who would be going to locate this? How would you get this, you know, evidence? Now, I, I think what happened back before then was that each squad handled things differently. And if it was a reactive squad, there was a task force. Back then, you had a bank robbery task force. You had the drug task force. Now it's all terrorism task forces. But I, I think basically they were they relied on the local police department to help them. And the difference is with the ERT, you have a dedicated group of people who may be working a variety of different violations, but they're all trained and they work as a team to do this uh, evidence recovery. Is that the difference? That's the difference. And the case wow. agents loved it because when they wanted to process a car, I mean, we all went did fingerprint classes at, you know, Quantico, you know. In fact, that was one of the fun things that I did. And I used to do very good at classifying fingerprints. By the time I got out and I was in New York office, I'd never done any of that stuff. I couldn't do that again. So now we had people that were actually trained that used those skills over and over again. And they liked searching and finding stuff. And what made the program in other offices was like San Francisco. They had, you know, the Polly Class case. They, they found a fingerprint. There, there was something that made this program and those individual offices very, very valuable. And for some reason, New York didn't take off until a little bit later. And what my approach was, I used my my uh, skills I developed in the special weapons and tactics team to give them some kind of structure and training and and uh, keep it fresh. And once the office saw that what we can develop, it was like one nonstop shopping. If they had a any kind of forensic capability to it, you know, it was it was not a search team. It was not a you know a white collar squad had. X amount of boxes to look for documents. There had to be some sort of forensic edge to it because that's what I wanted this program to develop into, and that's exactly what it did. And once the successes were documented, because I used to do a, I used to, on my own, I used to do a report every month just to show to my supervisors and management this is how active this program is, not only what cases we're working, but what training we're doing, what outreach we're doing. It, it actually became very valuable. And to show you how successful it was, when I took it over, they were being used as a program three to five times a year. By the time I was done, we were, were 50, 60 times a year. So it was a very, very active program. And it grew, and we got many more, uh, you know, equipment and training opportunities. And I'm, I'm very happy. And even after I left, it grew further. So... I was very happy to kind of take that off the ground for uh, you know, the New York field office. Now, the people who were on the ERT were all volunteers. Let's say that there was a, and you, and you mentioned this briefly, that there was an extraterritorial case, say, in name a place that you went. Uh, Mombasa, Kenya, Elk, Towers. Okay. Once you're on the team, were you automatically told to go there, or was that more of a who can go and raise your hand if you want to go and, and do this? How, what, what kind of responsibility did the team members have over and above their regular casework assignments? See, this was the delicate balancing act that we had to make sure we did. I mean, everybody 
did this as a collateral duty, basically. So I had no authority to say to an agent that they would go overseas and process a case. Thankfully, a lot of people wanted to go and they wanted to participate. Early years, I don't know if you remember, but early years when, when these uh, deployments started, we'd have a we'd have a small army of agents uh, deploy various parts of the world. One of the things that I saw early on was inoculations and shots, and this was actually pre the rapid deployment team days when that program started becoming formalized. So when it became an issue where, say, Mombasa and Kenya, it was a challenge of, well, how many ERT people do we need? Should we take? And this was part of my give and take. And then it was a matter of who was available. And then it was a matter of, do they have their stuff together? Do they have their go bag, their shots, their passports? And that was a building process, which didn't take long to build, but the focus was on, you know, I want everybody to be safe. It's not a trip to sightsee or whatever. And I really never had problem getting volunteers to go because a lot of people wanted to go. And that was what was great about this program is that if you were criminal, you got a chance to see terrorism stuff and vice versa. You got a chance to build your, uh, your talents because that was the the challenge with New York, I mean, when I worked terrorism, I worked Irish terrorism. I, I wouldn't know any of the other areas if it fell over me because that was my focus. I was like knee deep into that stuff. But here you can kind of get a, a, a bunch of different exposure and anything that was large or complicated or unusual or outside the norm, we were called to say, how could you help us with this? And that grew even, you know, in later years. I mean, I remember when, uh, you remember when the Maersk, Alabama, on Easter Sunday, got taken over by the Somali pirates? I mean, yes, I, oh, yeah. I, I ran in, left the ham in the oven, ran into the office, and part of the negotiation was they wanted to bring that boat back that the pirates were on. And it's like, well, yeah, you can bring the boat back, but what are you looking to get out of it? And then they'd all look at one another, you know, like, well, what are we looking to accomplish? Because the Bureau was changing its ways from, let's take everything, let's, because the lab was getting overrun with things like stretches of highway when people saw a drop of blood. So we were trying to finesse our approach a little bit. What are we looking to accomplish? What can you get? And... It was just amazing about some of the misperceptions that were out there as to what you could and couldn't do forensically, you know. And I, I could tell you some of the stories that would, like, scare me, but it was like, you know. Give me, um, like, in this particular situation, when you ask them, okay, you get the boat and we process the boat, what are you looking to find? What would they be able to find from a forensic processing of the boat that these uh, Somali pirates had been on? Well, we could have processed uh, the uh, the boat for hair, fiber, the bullet fragments, whatever it may be. But you have to remember, they had eyewitnesses. They knew they were on the boat. The captain was on the boat. So what was the point? I mean, did you want to expend that amount of money to bring that over to do that? Or was it easier just to seize the boat and send people over there and process it directly for that? But again, was that 
was that something that was very important for the case? Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes that's what people lost in the mix is like, well, what am I, you know, just because I can collect a fingerprint, do I need to? Should I? I mean, when I have the smoking gun, do I need to collect the fingerprint? So when it came to the extraterritorial cases, that's where a little bit of discretion came in, I think. is Right. And again, because of manpower and cost issues, well, you know, it, it had to be worth it. It had to be, it had to be worth well, it. Well, I think, I think the, uh, I want to say it was Kenya and Tanzania was probably the last so-called army that the Bureau sent over. After that, it started pairing, pairing way, way down. I mean, I, I would send at, after that, like, an agent to Djibouti to, to process, you know, fingerprints. Because it now became a matter of they couldn't afford it. You know, the, the, whatever the diplomatic status was, they didn't want armies of agents running around because of back then it was like, well, the next question was, can we take our guns? Because they felt unsafe. And it's like, well, what is the jurisdiction for this? I mean, I don't want to have somebody take their gun, use it, and now we're having an international, you know, incident on our sands. So what needs to be done to make sure that the people are protected and we do this right? And that program grew, and I, and I think by the time I left, it was pretty much on, on point. So when did you leave? I just retired in November last year. Oh, okay. So you can really give a good understanding of how the program evolved from what happened when you first got it up and running and what's going on now. Yeah, no, I mean, I was the ERT coordinator. I was on that program from 96 to, I left right after the World Trade Center. And then I went on the crisis management squad, of which the ERT was a part of it. So was SWAT. And then I became the supervisor of crisis management after a break doing something else. I think in 2005 or so. So. I was actually very happy to see how this program started with, when I said earlier, we basically had nothing in hand-me-downs to, and it was done after me, I can't say credit for it, actual off-sites with equipment that was like, it boggled my mind that there was that much effort put in for it. But when you produce results, you produce results, and that's... But this Body Remains drug case was one of the first that a team got together to process a crime scene site, a forensic crime scene site. Yeah, this this was the one that put us on the map because the case agent couldn't believe when he showed up. And he saw, I mean, 24 agents working around the clock in the middle of New York City probably wouldn't cost too much of a star. But we literally had a couple hundred New York City cops with us and a lot of their equipment. And when they showed up, and it was like, we did all of this on our own. They couldn't believe it. And then that's when we started being used for other things. So that was the whole intention. We'll do the search, one-stop shopping, just kind of like tell us what we need to do. And it, it just ballooned up from there. So, And then that segued into the team being asked to send people over for international training assignments to teach forensic schools. Because that was a very big part of what the Bureau was doing back there, and, and people traveled to Paraguay, Panama, uh, Israel, Palestine, all over the world to uh, you know teach police officers basic crime scene processes. So 
that was kind of like the reward. That was the fun stuff for all the effort that we were putting forth. Give me a little bit of an understanding about crisis management. Can you explain what crisis management is and what uh, the Bureau's responsibilities, because I do want to get into situations such as uh, Hurricane Sandy, because now that's a national, you know, a natural disaster. And I understand that you played some role in that, too. Yes. Crisis management from the Bureau is very, it's a very interesting process. Your crisis manager is basically executive management's advisor. When I first got on that squad, which was just created in 2013, the whole idea that we were trying to put together was one-stop shopping. So if a case agent now came to us and we could provide tactical resources, evidential resources, the rapid deployment team, which was being started, the whole idea was to, to focus, contact one person, your crisis manager, who was basically aware of the capabilities of all these programs and provide you whatever you needed to solve your case. In addition, beginning the command posts, the information flow, setting that up and having responsibility for, you know, giving people access to information, that was the whole intent of it. And again, I felt that took a while to to uh, settle in. I mean, I was actually amazed that, like, we, we had our op center, but that was actually outgrown. That was really the size of a conference room. And, you know, with the advent of terrorism, we needed more and more space. And being in a federal building, we really didn't have that access to build very much. And it wasn't the advent of when they moved our terrorism to uh, Chelsea facility that we actually had a 4,000 square feet facility that we were able to gather funding for basically basic stuff, but, you know, TV screens and computers and uh, a whole format to... Uh, and, the, and is this before or after 9-11? Uh, this was after 9-11, because I remember in 9-11, I was sitting in the old command post when the plane hit, the second plane hit, and that's when we moved to our garage. So I'm not even sure if the crisis management as a program was a squad at that point. I just think it was a collateral duty of a supervisor to do that. And, and you're talking about, my God, you're talking about being overwhelmed from the second one on that. You know, the crisis management program, again, you know, came under CERG down at headquarters, great group of people. But again, how do we meld that and how do we sell that? Again, it was selling that to the office. It was like, this is what we can do for you. And certainly with the advent of terrorism, we were very, very active in doing exercises, everything from train exercises to building exercises. But this was the funny, I shouldn't say funny, but the interesting part about it is, that, you know, it, it's geared toward investigations. That what we do in the Bureau is investigations. Now, when you're talking about Hurricane Sandy, I'll always say that Hurricane Sandy was the crisis that had absolutely no FBI jurisdictional component to it. It was a continuity of operations situation. And in addition to the crisis management program, I'm sure you're not going to be surprised if I tell you there was a program called COOP, 
Continuity of Operations Program. And that was something that began after 9-11. And I believe what happened was, because of what was going on, like in New York, where we evacuated the building, then we had to somehow get a hold of everybody and reestablish our office somewhere else, it was like, well, how do we prepare for this and keep the office running? You know, the continuity of government program is a Truman area era program, but it started applying to the office. This was something that no one ever did before, and it was like, how do we even start? The funny thing about it was that the continuity of operations program actually came under our security division, but crisis management came under serve. And there was always this move between the two entities of who should take it over and why they should or shouldn't. Can we explain continuity of operations so that people understand what you mean when you when you talk about that? Absolutely. Continuity of operations is making sure that an office, an entity, an enterprise can function or remains to be functioned in time of disaster or an operational uh, challenge. And what is done is, whether it's the government or whether it's a private entity, identify what what are our critical functions that absolutely can't be interrupted at all, period. And if so, how do we keep working it, even if it's from a different field office? And Stan, I I don't know if you realize this, but my post-bureau career, I worked for SEPTA, which is Philadelphia's uh, public transportation system. And that's one of those entities where transportation, getting that back up and running after a major crisis or disaster is very important. And so it sounds like not only the FBI, but all major government service Entities need to be able to, to, to have this continuity of operations program. Absolutely correct. That's exactly what it is. I mean, yes, it could be used for casework. Sure, a 9-11 was a continuity of operations movement, even though that program didn't exist in New York at the time. And what I would say is that every continuity of operations movement is a crisis, but not every crisis is a coup program. I would imagine that in places like, uh, say, Oklahoma, where they have the tornado season, they know that they're going to be some cities or areas hit, that they've always had an established continuity of operations program. I think it goes hand in hand with certainly emergency preparedness and crisis management to have that fallback plan. Uh, the challenge we face in an area like New York is that you know, how do you reconstitute an office the size of the New York office in an urban area to function somewhere else? How do we account for our people? Because not everyone had a BlackBerry or a cell phone. It was a very, very large challenge for us. And like any crisis management plan, it's great it's on paper, but it's a guide because no matter what happens, there's always going to be some nuance, something different, something that's going to uh, basically skew whatever you want to do, but if nothing else, it makes you think about how do we handle such things. God bless FEMA. They started a federal working group, which they got that juggernaut going where they would offer training and uh, exercises, and the benefit of it was you got to meet other people in the community and see what they were doing and see how it 
apply or not apply to you. And for us, the biggest challenge was, you know, we, we have our system that you can't access from outside because that's not the nature of our business. So how do we prepare for that? So when Hurricane Sandy came... If we can talk a little bit more about Hurricane Sandy because we have people, you know, from outside the East Coast, out, outside of the United States, you know, who are listening. Uh, when was Hurricane Sandy? Hurricane Sandy was October 28, 2012. I think technically it wasn't a hurricane, but they called it a superstorm because uh, it just splattered the East Coast area severely, at least up by us. That was an incident where I don't think anyone ever thought it was going to be as bad as it was, me included. And the whole focus was on, you know, how do we prepare our people? You know, where do they go for resources? How do we tell them what to look for, how to prepare? And it was simple stuff. Fill up your tank with gas for your car, whether it's your personal car or your bureau car. Take your portable radio home. So it was getting information out. Another challenge was I I just got in the desk of our operations center, and that was one of the few, if not maybe really only, squad that you had to be there. People had to be there uh, because we dealt with, you know, everything from complaint duty to physical security of all our off-sites, the alarm program. I, I felt that I'm not going to stay home while I'm telling people to go to work, so that's why I went into the office that Sunday and basically lived there for three days as the hurricane came through the area and experienced, you know, the loss of power, heat, and phone, how that affected our area, and watching all of our resident agencies actually go dark because they were either in flood zones or the main uh, servers went out of commission. And it wasn't until that Wednesday when we relocated to the Brooklyn, Queens resident agency that we were able to basically get up and running. Funny story was, I went in Sunday, and I think I went home Tuesday night, but I had to come back in Monday midnight because people just couldn't, you know, get in. The tunnels were flooded. George Washington Bridge was the only thing that was operating. So a lot of people's lives were being affected. I remember being there on midnight, and... You know, I always considered myself a kind of a player coach type thing. The phone rang, I answered it, and there was a gentleman reporting that his son was kidnapped. And it's sort of like, there's nothing moving in this area. How the heck could anybody be kidnapped, for God's sakes? I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Turned into some long-distance thing from Florida, and he reported it to the police. It took me a couple hours to straighten out, but I was able to straighten it out, but... I guess the whole point of it was that we were able to get up and running satisfactory to the point where we took complaints and we were able to help people out that needed help or wanted FBI assistance. And you know what the challenge of all this stuff is? People start forgetting. I'm thinking now it's 15 years since 9-11. I don't think there are too many people left in our office that were there during 9-11. And I, I don't know. I, I just think people forget. But that is what made the Continuity of Operations program a real viable, important aspect of bureau life. And even though there was no case, because usually when it comes to these things, crisis management-wise, 
you're going from zero to a hundred in the blink of an eye. You're always behind the power curve to set up a command post, to notify people, because we had to handle a case at hand. Sandy was a little bit different in that there was no case. We just had to account for the people, and that was a big enough challenge in and of itself. Well, it sounds like you've had a very interesting career because of the work that you've done on building these very important programs. And I take it that these most of these programs, the reason for them to, to be created, both domestic and international terrorism, was, uh, was behind uh, the creation or the need for a lot of these programs. Correct. You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, I remember when I worked terrorism, we were a branch. There were three squads, one domestic, two international. Now it's its own division with SACs and ASACs and squads that are handling so much work, and they're probably still overworked. And, and, and that drives a lot of these programs because the resources that are needed to, to, to combat this threat is like unbelievable. Well, if I were to ask you to kind of sum up your career and your work with the Bureau, what would you say? I want to say I think I was very fortunate to be in the Bureau for almost 29 years. And I was a local cop before I went in. And I always enjoyed, I don't want to say it was like reactive work, but kind of like work that that gave you kind of an analysis to, to make things better, to make information flow, to protect people. And I had an opportunity to do that. And even though they weren't the priority programs, I think, of the Bureau, I think we supported and we did some very, very outstanding work in our own way to safeguard our people, the people we serve. I think we reflected very highly on the Bureau, and I think our work showed that. I was very happy about that. I was very happy to to uh, be a member of the Special Weapons and Tactics team. I was happy to be on the Evidence Response team and work everything from uh, TWA 800, Egypt Air 990, USAR 1549 up to 9-11. Uh, as far as crisis management goes, every major case that was there, we had a, I had a piece of, even though it wasn't a case agent, so to speak. I had a piece of, and I made it work, and I developed a mechanism to make those cases run better. Um, and even with continuity of operations. Again, it was developing the cooperation, collaboration of, of so many agencies that uh, we just make it better for our people and the people that were around us. And I think make us stronger. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, I have photos of Stan and some of the Uh, incidents that he spoke about. We also have links to an FBI overview uh, regarding the evidence response team. And there are a couple of articles about that human remains drug case that he talked about. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and family and make it easy for you. At the bottom of this episode's show notes, you'll find all of the social media share buttons. There's no crime fiction 
uh, review or recommendation this week. I'm working on that second novel. I'm probably only going to be able to read two books a month. So every other episode, I should have a recommendation for you. I'm reading a great book right now. Fantastic book. But I got to wait to see how it ends before I can recommend it to you. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.